Amy Bond, who uh, is a part of our fellowship, her, Amy and Mike Bond, and she runs Perk. She's just a blessing. She's made such a difference through the last four years that we went through in our nation, going to the Capitol, legislating things, having legal teams that are winning cases to keep children from being forced to be vaccinated, various things. Anyway, uh, when you know one part of your body hurts, the, the whole part, the whole body hurts. And so her mom and dad, uh, the King family, they just this week had their house totally destroyed. They barely got out with their lives. It was uh, burned to the ground. And, um, and so I just want, when I heard that, I wanted to, we made a QR code, and we're just going to leave this up for a minute. If you want to donate something to this family, they're going through a really tough time financially through all of this crisis, uh, you can, this will take you right to that website, and you can be involved with it. Our fellowship has always been so responsive just to needs that come up, so thank you guys for those who have a heart to help if the Lord leads you to do that. No pressure. Our service team are going to hand out Bibles. If you're here and you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, keep it up in the air, and they'll get you a Bible. You're gonna be making your way to Mark chapter one. Everybody that has your Bible, we're reading through the Anchored in the Word series, and we're, as we're going through the New Testament, this week we're in Mark chapter one, two, three, and four, and we wanna share with you the man on the move in chapter one. Mark's gospel is the shortest gospel, and Jesus basically, his life is a four-camera shoot. The three-camera shoot became popular, pop, popularized in Hollywood by the Lucille Ball Show. As far as I know, uh, film uh, historians say that's when the three-camera shoot came into play. We have a three-camera shoot here normally. Uh, Dan's back there faithfully in the booth, and we have two people on each side. This camera and part of our videography team is in Africa. That's how you had the cool video uh, announcements from Africa, because they're over there with Garrett. But uh, the four Gospels are like a four-camera shoot, four different perspectives. Now, we have three cameras. There's no reason to have a fourth camera at the back of my head, Correct. Like, I don't need something at the back of my head, which I'm thankful for because I have a genetic cow lick in the back and I always have a rooster tail all the time. My wife, our whole life, she's trying to put down my rooster tail. You got a rooster tail, honey? You're going out to preach. And I'm like, yeah, but they're not looking at the back of my head, head, babe. So my wife and I, when we were kids, when she was a freshman and I was a junior in high school, we had uh, the same science class and she remembers, because this is before we dated or anything like that, she remembers two things about me, and this is a joke. She said, I remember, I thought you were so cute. You always had a black eye, which I was always either getting in fights or I got them through sports. I always had black eyes off and on. Every three weeks or so, I'd have a black eye. And, and I always had a rooster tail. And she's like, look at this guy with his rooster tail. He, he must not know it's there. Well, I just never cared. And then I got married and I realized that I have a rooster tail all the time because my wife's there. Just like you discover, as soon as you get married, you're like, I didn't know how to dress. I thought everything was fine. But you get ready to leave the house, and your wife goes, you're not leaving in that, right? You're not walking out in public in that. I said, I thought I would. Like, I used to be, you know. So you have a new fashion designer. You have a new hairdresser. Get all this stuff. But the four Gospels, they look at Jesus from four different angles, the Gospel of Matthew, being 28 chapters, is really concerned with conveying that he is the king of Israel. He is their Jewish Messiah. Quotes many passages of scripture. 
In Luke's gospel, it's really concerned to display him as the God-man, his humanity. Luke takes more time to really describe his humanity, that he, he, swe- uh, he sweats, he, he's tired, various aspects of his humanity. The gospel of John is about the logos. It's about the deep philosophical idea of this. What are the reasons or thoughts from God that brought to us Jesus, the word become flesh, the, rev- the human revelation of all of God's heart towards us in a human package. But Mark's gospel is the short, punchy, it's the get-or-done gospel. If you're a type A personality and you're the person that always says, give me the bottom line. Somebody comes in with a long list of details, you're like, stop, what's the bottom line? I always have staff members, because I'm a big picture guy, so I love to have staff members that somebody needs to know the details, but please don't tell them to me because I would rather be shot in the head than go through two-hour meeting over every detail. And yet I have people on my staff that just, they get giddy inside about details. <laughs> we get to talk about all the details. And when that person comes in and starts to download, I say, stop, what's the bottom line? Just give me, I want the, the bottom, oh, this is the bottom line. Isn't that, isn't that easy? You just, I didn't have to wade through. But they're like, getting there's the fun. Getting all the details is fun. And Mark is just like, punchy. To give you an example, the gospel of Mark or Matthew takes eight chapters, eight chapters. Mark covers the same period of ministry in a punchy style in 34 verses. He's the guy that says, boom, 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 boom. This is is what he did. This is very little dialogue, less parables, less everything except action. His favorite word is immediately and immediately, and immediately, and immediately. You just get urgent just reading through it. Eight times in this first chapter, immediately, immediately, immediately. I gotta get going, you know, underlay, underlay. You know, let's, let's get going. So he wants to move fast. He doesn't wanna give you a lot of background, doesn't wanna burden you with, with details. He's a man of action. He is the young guy that you find at the end of the book. There's a young guy wrapped in a, a cloak And when they come to arrest Jesus, one of the soldiers attempts to grab him and rips the robe off of him, so he runs away naked, like he has nothing. He's like the only streaker that we see in the scriptures. And that's the Gospel of Mark. He's a young man. Most believe that he received this message from being uh, discipled by the Apostle Peter. So most believe this is Peter's perspective through his young disciple, John Mark. So we pick it up. In verse one, we see the front man. Because if Jesus is gonna come on the scene, there's somebody that prepares the way. We know him as John the Baptist. In verse one, it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He preached, saying, there comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The beginning of the gospel, the Lord turns loose 
Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. Six months when, when John the Baptist, who was the son of a priest, he was prepared out in the wilderness. He was not in the, uh, at the temple like his father, Zacharias. He was being prepared for a special message. He was a prophetic fulfillment of Isaiah 40 and Malachi chapter three of the voice of one crying in the wilderness to prepare the way for the Lord. And at the age of 30, he came on the scene. He's a mean, lean preaching machine out in the wilderness. He doesn't go to town. He doesn't have uh, mass emails. He doesn't have texts. He doesn't have a newsletter. He just goes out and he starts preaching. And the message that he's preaching is so anointed that people begin to be drawn from all over. He doesn't come to town. They all go out to the wilderness, out to the Jordan River where he's at. And there is message of very brief. He said, prepare yourself, repent, turn from your sin and be baptized in preparation for the coming Messiah. That was his whole role. Six months later, when Jesus turned 30, they're both six months apart. We know that because of Luke's gospel. Jesus comes on the scene and shortly afterwards, he's going to be arrested and beheaded. Talk about a brief ministry. 30 years of preparation, maybe one year of service, and off to heaven he goes. It's a mystery, isn't it, how God calls one for a lifetime of service, 60 or 70 years, and another person, it's six months, it's one year. God's ways and the way that he does things, Jesus chose 12 disciples, 12 apostles, and in the book of Acts, almost right away, James, one of the apostles, is beheaded. He has his head chopped off by King Herod. Like, wow, you just invested three years in him. And the next day, once Herod saw that this pleased the Jews to kill James, then he arrested Peter. But the Lord delivered Peter by an angel of the Lord. It's like, what's up? How come John gets his head chopped off and Pete gets to go on, not that it was any more glorious, down the road, he has to be crucified, which is the pits, right? Either way, it's not a good ending. But I think it's so important when we see God's plan for individuals. Do you know that your plan that God has for you is not as the same as the person next to you and across the aisle? We go through our lives comparing ourselves to everybody else going, how come I'm not like them? How come I didn't get that job? I wish I was doing this. And we want to be everybody else. Isn't that weird? We just go through life wanting to be everybody else. And you finally get exhausted and you come to the realization, I might as well be me because everybody else is taken. <laughs> right? Nobody wants to be me. I don't even want to be me. Right? Now somebody say, might say, oh, I want to be you. I, yeah, be, you don't live in my shoes. I want to be somebody else. <laughs> in this passage, the front runner, John the Baptist, as he comes forward with this message to prepare people because this is what resonates you ever see harmonic resonance? You play a note on the piano and, and on, on the guitar right next to it, a string of the same note, frequency begins to shake and you're like, I'm not touching that guitar. Know that the note here, there's a harmonic resonance. You know what the harmonic resonance in your soul and my soul and the people that John was preaching to? Is I need forgiveness. There's a sense of shame and guilt in the human heart that you've fallen short. You're not perfect. You've let God down, you've let others down, and sadly, you've let yourself down. 
And there's this, this aching, this longing, this, this desire somehow to remedy that problem, right? It's like this thing deep inside of us. Anytime I walk into a, a, a group of people and I'm trying to win their heart, maybe it's a foreign place where I'm going, and, and I can tell there's just like this big disconnect, all I have to do is to lean in to the deepest need in their soul. You really need to get right with God. Don't you sense inside this longing to have more to life, this longing to be something different, something different inside of you. And this message, people start coming from Jerusalem, they start coming from Judea, they start coming from everywhere because the thought that I can repent and I can be baptized in preparation for a coming savior is the most hope I've heard in a very long time. You're not gonna hear that hope on Fox News or CNN. It's just not there. The hope that comes through the message of the gospel. Now, John, it gives us a glimpse of not only his message, but what he looks like when he came on the scene. He was the first original hippie. Check it out in verse six. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he had granola in his pockets. He ate locusts and wild honey. I mean, he was Mr. Natural. He's got his camel skin jacket. He's got his big leather belt, big bushy beard. He's got the 60s, 70s, big hair. And he's eating grasshoppers with a little honey on top. (laughs) Good protein, (laughs) sweet to the taste. He's Mr. Natural. I had my first exposure to the big hippie movement when I moved from Idaho as a seven-year-old kid. And we were living on the Paramount Ranch over here in the Aguirre Hills and in 1972, and they had a, the Renaissance Fair. Anybody, have you got, ever go to the Renaissance Fair? Okay, there we go. We got some fellow hippies in the room. The Renaissance Fair. So 1972, I mean, there's hundreds if not thousands of uh, hippies there, and I'm seven years old, and I'm checking out these very strange people. I'm from Idaho. It's rednecks and cowboys and farmers, and, and I'm looking at these people, and I'm looking at their bell-bottom, you know, pants and all these different things. And then here comes Lady Cadiva. Now, Lady Cadiva comes totally naked on a horse riding in. And I'm sitting there in awe as a seven-year-old boy saying, we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. Right? There's, there's a whole different planet. And, and my older, I'm the youngest, so all my older siblings were right at that, that 13-year-old, like, embrace it. So my brother got him a really cool leather hippie watch band with a peace sign in it. He's so cool. And then we went back home to Idaho to visit, and my grandparents, who were fiery Baptists from Oklahoma, she saw that devil work. That peace sign, which I've heard is a broken cross. They broke Jesus' cross. You get that watch off. And she got that watch off my brother, and she cut that peace sign right out of his watch band and gave it right back to him, and it looked like a butchered piece of leather holding on to his watch. Welcome to the, the 60s and the 70s, right? We all had the coolest bell bottoms. I had my favorite pair of bell bottoms were forest green and black checkers. They were high-waisted. Man, they would have made John Travolta dream about having such a pair. But here as John the Baptist shows up, he's a very unique person. He People are drawn to him. He, he, he's not trying to 
um, impress anybody except to deliver a message. That's what he was called to do. That's what he was prophesied about. He never performed a miracle, and yet Jesus said, of all the prophets born of men, there's none greater than John the Baptist. Because he did his job, and then he said, he must increase, I must decrease. And he went to prison, got his head chopped off, very brief ministry, all over. The front man in this case brought on the scene the leading man in verse nine. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus shows up. Once again, these two are relatives, they're cousins. And he shows up in front of him and John's been telling the people, the one that's coming, the one that's coming, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Because you see, I came in preparation for you to have soft hearts of repentance and change and be baptized in water that was looking forward to a greater baptism. He said he's going to have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's one thing to have water baptism, which we identify with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus didn't need to be baptized and repent of his sins because he's sinless. Why did Jesus get baptized? He told John to fulfill all things. Basically, you and I look back at the cross that somebody's baptized, they're baptized in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus was looking forward to the cross prophetically. I'm going to the cross to die for the sins of the world and to be resurrected. So, Jesus gets baptized, but it's accompanied with a supernatural encore from heaven. A booming voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And the heavens departed and a dove descended. It was the spirit of God in a bodily form of a dove and it rested on Jesus and remained. That's how John the Baptist knew that he was the promised one. He was the savior, he was the Messiah. So his job being done, the leading man showed up on the scene to start his ministry. And what do you think the very first thing is gonna, when, when you step up and go, hey, I've decided to follow Jesus. Like that old song, I've decided to follow Jesus, though none go with me, still I will follow. And once you've decided to follow Jesus, Jesus just as Jesus comes away from the baptism, we see the tested man. Now, temptation in our lives is not something most of us look forward to. Actually, it's the pits, Right? I don't really care for temptation, it's the pits, but I gotta learn to resist it and resist the devil and obey the Lord, submit to God, and the devil will flee from me. Jesus models this for us. He models how to follow him in baptism. He models how to resist temptation. In verse 12 and 13, immediately the spirit drove him into the wilderness and he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan and was with the wild beasts and the angels ministered to him. 40 days he goes out in the wilderness and it says the spirit of God drove him. The spirit of God pushed, pulled, brought Jesus to the place of the wilderness and then stepped back and said, okay, we're gonna see this duel between Satan and his temptations and the son of God that's gonna conquer temptation. You and I have three basic temptations and they all have a bit of variety that surrounds each one. John the apostle tells us this. In 1 John chapter two, he says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, these are the things that everybody struggles with. You, me, everybody. The, my natural appetites that are good and healthy, the devil wants to pervert them into an unhealthy way. 
right? I have a natural desire to be hungry and to drink and to uh, do the things that would sustain me, but how would you twist that? How would you pervert that? Well, you would then overeat or be a slave to what you eat. Both are, are aberrant things that we see in anorexia and bulimia or uh, obesity. Both those things would be aberrant type of things. And yes, we, we want to drink, but we don't want to be drunks, right? We don't, we don't want to be in bondage to that. We also, we uh, are sexual creatures. So we want to have sexual fulfillment. So the Lord gives us this in the covenant of marriage. And so in the covenant of marriage, it's safe, it's blessed, it's beautiful, it's wonderful, it's awesome. And yet he wants to twist that so that we're in sex before we're married or extramarital affairs afterwards or into same sex attraction or into some kind of sexual abuse with children or some kind of other, he's always trying, whatever's natural and good, the devil twists and perverts. Doesn't matter what it is. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the things that my eyes see, and then I crave what my eyes see visually. Lust is manifest in my physical desires, but it's also manifest in the desires of my eyes. And then the pride of life really is, I deserve all these things anyway, right? Because it's me. Aren't I special? I should have whatever I want. I'm the ultimate teenager. Life revolves around me. I am one big fat selfie. Check me out. And I deserve this, and if I don't get that, that's not fair. And pride is basically a preoccupation with yourself. Do you understand that? Pride. Pride is a preoccupation with yourself. All you think about is you. You think about you. You think about you. And then you wonder if other people are thinking about you and thinking about you. So these three things... These are the three things that Eve was stumbled by, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. She saw with her eyes, lust of the eyes, that the food was pleasant. Then she saw that it was good for food, lust of the flesh, and that it was good to make one wise. I'll be smarter if I eat this food. So she wanted to be wiser than God. She wanted what her eyes wanted. Her appetite physically wanted that. And so she was sunk through those basic temptations. When Jesus conquered these three basic temptations, the lust of the flesh turned the stone into bread, the lust of the eyes, all the kingdoms of this world are mine, all you have to do is bow down and worship me, and pride, hey, if you are the son of God, jump off the temple because he even quotes scripture. Did you know the devil knows the Bible? Did you know he twists scripture to deceive you? He quotes scripture to Jesus. He quotes Psalm 91 to him. He goes, hasn't he said that his angels will keep charge over you lest you dash your foot against the stone? How is it that people in cults get, use scripture to twist it? Because the devil knows the Bible better than you do. And he can twist it and manipulate it. Because you can make the Bible say pretty much anything you want to. If you want to. How do people get jacked up about these things? And yet through all of this, Jesus pass the test. Because you see, the Savior that came to save me, he can't save me unless he himself can conquer the things that are kicking my butt, right? My own sin. It's less the flesh, less the eyes and pride of life. These are the things I struggle with. These are the things you struggle with. Different, you know, different uh, aspects of it, different subtleties of it, different nuances of it. Yes, but it's all the same, all the same. And so Jesus, if he conquers that, then I go, wow, if he now, as the resurrected Lord, fills me with his presence and his power, he now lives inside of me for the first time in my life, I can resist sin 
and I can obey God. I don't do it perfectly. You're never gonna become sinless as a Christian, but as you grow in the Lord, you do sin less because he's helping you in the sanctification process. So Jesus is the tested man, and you will be tested when you say, you know what, I'm gonna step up and serve God. That was, oh really? Let's check you out. Let's see what you got. Have you ever said those famous last words, I would never do that? Only a year later to be crying in your own beer saying you did exactly that, right? Because you failed. The Bible says, if you think you stand firm, take heed lest you fall, right? If I think I stand firm, take heed lest I fall. That I should not be have an exaggerated perspective of my own strength spiritually. I am weak, I am vulnerable. God, I need your help. That's why I need to pray daily. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I, I need him to lead me out of it. The Holy Spirit drove him into it so that he could display that he conquered it. So he's our hero. He conquers sin and he conquers the fear of death. The two great things you need and I need is I need to conquer sin and I need to conquer the fear of death. I wanna know that when I die, I'm going straight into the arms of Jesus, don't you? Because death's coming for all of us. Impressive statistics, one for one, two for two, 10 for 10, coming for every one of us. So the fulfilling man in verse 14, now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So John's passing off the scene. Jesus is coming on full bore in his ministry, and this is what he wants to talk about. He says, the time is fulfilled. Jesus came in the perfect time. He's the perfect man at the perfect time, at the perfect place to fulfill God's plans so that you and I could be here 2,000 years later still talking about him as the hero of our story. He showed up on the scene. He's not a, a dead Jewish teacher from 2,000 years ago. He's resurrected. He's alive and well. He'll never leave us or forsake us. He's here right now with us, present with us by his spirit, though invisible. And he wants us to experience the repentance, which means to change our mind and our direction and our life of sin, and to turn from that and believe and trust in him because he wants us to believe the gospel, gospel good news. It's really good news that I've really messed up, but Jesus died for all my sins so that I could be forgiven. Isn't that good news? Seriously good news. I, I mean, it, it's shocking news. I, I, I don't know. What, when I was 15, I got busted for grand larceny. Me and some friends, we stole a whole bunch of camper shells and we we're gonna resell them. We're idiots, that's just what we did. And, and so at 15, I was busted for grand larceny. And, but I didn't have the money. We had to pay restitution. So I was going to have to do 10 days in county jail at 15 and wear the cool orange overalls and have a year of probation. And I wore the overalls, they weren't cool at all. I didn't think, they weren't my color. They didn't, you know, they just, they didn't do much for me, but I uh, spent some time in county jail, but I had to pay restitution, and this was the biggest problem, because I was broke, and my family was broke, and it was a thousand bucks for my part of the restitution, because there were seven of us involved, and we destroyed and sold $7,000 worth of uh, merchandise, which is, you know, back in uh, 1981 or 80 or something like that, back in the day. So... I had no money, and if you don't do restitution, you have to do the rest of your, your, your time. And so I really didn't know what I was gonna do. And so I called to find out, and they said, oh, somebody paid your restitution. I said, what? They said, somebody just paid your restitution. So I went home, and I said, mom, somebody paid my restitution. 
Now, my stepdad at the same time was in prison for stabbing a guy five times. So that was kind of our jacked up family, you know, just to let you know where I'm coming from. So the grand larceny for the camper shells, not really a big deal. Not sticking blades in people, not yet anyway. And, but I, I'm like, mom, somebody paid for the rest. She, she said, I said, do you know who did it? She goes, I don't know. I never found out out of the seven people, somebody in that list of people paid for my restitution. I didn't know who to thank. I didn't know who had mercy on me. Some of the kids that I was involved with were kind of rich kids. So maybe their family didn't want, because if I didn't pay my part of the restitution, actually it was gonna mess up everybody else's sentencing as well. So it was like a, a corporate thing. Maybe some of them didn't wanna take the risk. And they had daddy with deep pockets. I was the poor white trash, but somebody took care of it. But I was so grateful that I didn't have to pay the price for the rest of my sentence because somebody else paid the price. They paid the restitution. And I'm so thankful because, you know, there's no restitution I could ever pay for all of my sin to God. And neither can you. That's why it's so bizarre to me when Christians get kind of dull and blunt in their walk with God. You've totally forgotten what God has done for you. You should be overwhelmed with gratitude every single day of your life. You should be overwhelmed. You should be in awe of the price that Jesus paid. He's, oh, I love the gospel because it's free. The gospel's not free. It cost Jesus everything. It took, cost his life, cost his blood. Cost him everything. Now, it's free to you and I. He paid it all. And it was, a, it was a bill that you should have paid. It was a debt you should have paid. And you didn't pay it. When we come to worship, as soon as I just think about, kind of block out the world, and I think about the magnitude of the good news of what Jesus has done for me. I'm overwhelmed and undone. And when you lose that as a child of God, like you just kind of take it for granted. You, you forget it. You, it it's, it's just not special anymore. You begin to be less effective for him. You begin to be less useful because the person that's overwhelmed with gratitude and worship for the one that rescued me and redeemed me from my sin and from eternity in hell paid this incredible price. And he'll do the same for you, it's called good news. It's not bad news. I'm not telling you bad news, I'm telling you good news. Isn't that good news? I think it's good news, praise God. So in, He's the recruiting man. He can't do all this by himself in verse 16. And he, as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also, also were in the boat, mending their nets. And immediately favorite word, he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. Check this out. He's now recruiting. He's just cruising through ministering. And this is the way it works. You choose those that you want to disciple. You choose those you want to mentor. You choose as you pray, God, these are the ones. And so he takes two brother sets. All the way through the scriptures, you know, uh, sometimes at church, you'll see a lot of family members on a church staff. 
And people, because in the last 20 years, nepotism is a, a, a big, big thing, like nepotism in companies, and nepotism is always wrong. Is that, is that true? No. All the way through the Bible, do you know that God uses families that love God? Noah had to build a boat for 100 years. Who's he, who'd he build it with? The boys, right? The three boys. He built a boat. Nobody was crying nepotism. The animals were definitely thankful for that nepotism, right? They got to get on the boat. And everybody was thankful for that boat that they built. Why? Because God takes a godly family and uses it in his service. You just fast forward all the way through. God uses the family, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all their boys. They're all the same family. You move forward. Moses is going to go serve the Lord. Call, tell Pharaoh. Who's he take with him? Aaron is his big brother and his big sister, Miriam. Aaron and Miriam go with him. They're going to help him in this service to God. All the way through. You look at David. David comes on the scene. David becomes king. Who becomes his general and his, uh, some of his mighty men? Joab is his cousin. Joab, the general, is his cousin. Abishai, Asahel, they're three brothers. They're all cousins. They're, in the, they're some of his best soldiers. Then Jesus comes into the New Testament, and what's he do? Hey, I'm going to take Simon and Andrew. I'm going to take James and John. I'm going to take these brothers, and I'm going to use them for my glory. Because you know what? Their families are godly families, and they, these boys are ready to serve God. Now, for the first two, Jesus says they were, the two boys were casting their nets, and so he goes, I'm going to make you guys fishers of men. You've been catching fish. you got this career going on. And, and, and now you're going to catch people. You're going to catch men with this, the, the net of love and salvation. James and John, just a little further down the shore, these are friends. They, they lived in Fishtown. That's the name of their town, Bethsaida. It means Fishtown. Where are you from, Fishtown? And because that's what the trade was there on the Sea of Galilee. He sees James and John. They're not casting their nets. They're mending their nets. So we see a different dimension of this fishing expedition. Those who are going to catch the fish and those who are going to be mending lives and ministering to lives. And, but they leave dad, slack-jawed, Zebedee's there because it's a family business. He's got James and John. These are my boys. This is, this is Zebedee, father and son, fishing company. And he's got some servants. And Jesus comes along and says, James, John, come with me. And they leave Zebedee. Zebedee's name means my gift. And in this moment, I wonder if it went through his mind. My name means my gift. And, and Jesus, this is my gift to you, my two boys. I pray, that, I pray that they could serve you. You know, most parents are uh, tragically, within the church throughout the years, I've seen parents be disappointed when God calls their kids into service. They're disappointed. The child calls the junior year or the senior year, they're, you know, eight months away from graduation, and they're like, hey, mom and dad, God's calling me to the mission field. I'm not gonna get my degree. And mom and dad's like, I just spent 60 grand on your, you know, what's going on? But really our greatest gift, our greatest treasure as parents is our children and our grandchildren. And it's the greatest joy if your kids would just wanna serve God and love God and follow God. That's a great gift. And Zebedee, I mean, his boys leave. So now he's got these four young men that are his first disciples, and they're now Jesus' disciples in two ways. He, he teaches, these are the instructions, and then he lives it, this is the example. This is always the most effective pathway to any kind of training or discipleship, right? I'll teach you how to do it, then I'm gonna demonstrate how to do it, and now you do it, and I'll watch you do it. No matter what trade you go into, I became a tile setter. When a tile setter gets a helper, 
You get a helper and the helper is trained. This is how you do it. This is how you grout. This is how you back a tile setter when he's coming out of a room. This is what you have ready for him. You're, you're trained. And Brick Lane, they call him a hottie. You're hot, not hottie, like you're in skimpy shorts. Hottie with D, hottie. You're, called, you're a hot carrier. And it, it's the same kind of thing. You're being trained. Well, in ministry, it's the same way. It, it, here at our team, we have these fine young men. We have about six young men. And for the last three years, I've been, been investing in these young men, and I teach them, this is how you do ministry, and then I model it for them. And they're like, oh, I'm, I get it. So now they're stepping up and doing those things. That's how you hand it off to the next generation. Also, that's how you expand ministry. Jesus is one place at one time, but he can have 12 begin to minister to all the people. You have to delegate. You have to train up. You have to delegate and do this in ministry. And where the last church where I was, where we started from nothing, we grew to about 3,000, and I had 120 people on staff. And those 120 people were doing all of the ministry for all the multitude of the 3,000. What I focused on was ministering to the 120. That was my ministry to them. If their mom or dad was in the hospital, I went and took care of my team, and then the team went and took care of the rest of the people. Because you can't do everything. So I basically monitored and ministered to a congregation of 120 within a church of 3,000. And when I effectively ministered to them, they effectively ministered to the rest of the people. That's what Jesus did for three years. He invested in 12, and they changed the world. The teaching man in verse 21, then he went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. People were blown away by Jesus' teaching. The anointing of the Lord and his words were just piercing to their heart. They were astonished. They'd been listening to teaching all their life with scribes and Pharisees and various people powerless people, and Jesus shows up on the scene and he rocks their world. The greatest experience, Paul the Apostle tells us, in our New Testament church is the gift of prophecy, which is speaking forth the word of God as we are right now in the power of the Holy Spirit so that the secrets of people's hearts are laid bare. So when you're, you ever come to church and you just feel like whoever's preaching has been like following you around that week? You ever come to a message and you think your mama called the preacher and told on you, right? This is what prophecy is. When you're struck in the heart, you kind of look around like, does everybody know what I've been doing all week long? When I was a young Christian, I started going to this church and this pastor had that gift. And I could, then I was not into worship and I didn't like the music and I was coming from ACDC and Def Leppard and Sammy Hagar and going into la, la, la. That didn't, you know, it wasn't doing anything for me. But every time that preacher stood up and opened the Bible, I felt like he had been following me around all stinking week. And I would always leave just, this is mystifying. How's this happen? How's this work? And every time I'm like, God's in that place. You go there and God just tells you what's going on. When Jesus spoke, there was a heart-piercing experience that people had. It tells us they were astonished at the authority with which he spoke the word of God. They're blown away. 
We see the deliverance man because you see there is a real spiritual warfare that you and I are experiencing. In verse 23, it says, Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. A demon-possessed man came to church? (laughs) They do do that in the most bizarre way. Demon possession is a real thing. My friend, uh, Bob, who's uh, also a a pastor and been a pastor for a long time, he was sharing with me some uh, years ago, he this guy started coming to church and him and his girlfriend, they seemed really like kind of tweaky. When, when people come to church, you're not sure if, if it's drugs or what. You know, you know when people are tweaking? <laughs> kind of my background, where I came from, what, you know. I had a cousin who was a meth addict. And I always knew, we called it the goop. Like if he's on meth, it's like, I always knew if in one month he dropped 20 pounds, Dude, you're on the goop. What's going on, right? You, it's the, uh, the crash diet program. Anyway, you, at church, you don't know all the time what's going on. Well, this guy came forward, and, and, and he wanted to audition for the worship team. And he's like, okay. Now, my friend's a really good electric guitar player, and he said, this guy could play. I mean, he blew him away. He goes, wow, man, you are so good. And he goes, I'd like you to come back, you know, next week and we'll talk again. Kind of get your background. Now I see that you can play. Let's take another step where you're at, where you walk with the Lord and, and your relationship and stuff uh, with your wife. And so he comes back the next week and he's talking to him in his office. And, and he says, when did you come to believe in Jesus? And it's when he said the name Jesus, the guy goes. <laughs> and he started like banging the wall next to him. He was sitting in a chair right next to the wall. My friend's like. Oh, snap, he's got a critter, right? And so he, my friend, who had been through this a couple of times in different situations, he rebuked it in Jesus' name, and he asked the guy, he just kept going it over with it, you know, and this took a little time, just not just like that. And he took a time, and, and finally, he, the, the demon came out of the guy, and he could see, like, there's this relief in the guy. The guy, for the first time, looked totally clear-eyed and normal, and it was like this incredible peace came over him. And he goes, I want you to say that Jesus is Lord out loud right now. Because you won't be able to do that in this, under this possession. And the guy's, Jesus is Lord. Man, I just, man, I'm set free. I've been delivered. And, and my uh, friend was so excited. He's like, isn't this great? You get to go home and tell your wife that you've been set free from this demon possession. And he slumped in his seat like this. And he goes, What's wrong? He goes, my wife has one too. So he was going home to a, and it's weird. And he told my friend, he said, when I was about 15 or 16, I started getting into some really occultic, dark stuff with magic and stuff. And he said, I, I prayed to the devil specifically, and I told him I would give him my soul if he would give me the gift to be able to play guitar. It's got like some kind of movie or something, right? You get this, and and he said, and from then on, I had this crazy, incredible gift. He literally sold his soul to the devil to be able to play guitar in a crazy way. Now, through a series of events, because things didn't work out with his wife or whatever, the guy basically ended up out of the church and going through his own journey and drama and how the Lord would work in his life. But demon possession's real. It's a real deal. 
If there's God and angels, there's Satan and fallen angels. And um, when Jesus interacts with them, notice that they know him. In verse 24, it says, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. They totally know, right? But Jesus tells him to shut up, literally be muzzled. And because he doesn't want the devil doing his PR work, right? He doesn't want him as a press agent. He's telling the truth. Paul the Apostle, years later in the book of Acts chapter 16, this girl, this demon possessed is following him. And in Barnabas, and she's saying, these are the servants of the most high God. She's telling the truth. These are the servants of the most high God. And Paul, it says, he finally got irritated knowing that she was demon possessed and he cast out the demon in Jesus' name. But the gift of fortune telling that she had also went. And so his, her owners, realizing they lost money, got so mad, they drug uh, Paul and uh, Silas to prison and they beat him with rods severely and threw him in prison. So these things are real. And uh, if you're in India, Africa, places like that where they're more into witchcraft, the possession is uh, higher, um, exponent, basically, in a way of uh, percentage-wise per capita because of that fact. But the viral man in verse 27, then they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him and immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. You know, we have people that go viral for stupid things today. Jesus is going viral for his authority and teaching in his authority in deliverance of people that are demon-possessed, and in his authority to heal sickness and disease. All good things. He's a visiting man, whether he's ministering to crowds and the fame that's spreading, but also in a home, in a family, in verse 29. Now, as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and immediately the fever left her and she served them. Now, if you come from a Catholic background, the first thing you're struck by is that the first Pope was married and had a mother-in-law, right? If you have a Catholic background, Peter was never married because you know, you, you have to be single as the priest. So the first Pope would also be single as a priest, but he has a mother-in-law I don't know if you know the actual biological tree. You must have a wife to have a mother-in-law. I know that's some real brainiac deep stuff. But you have to have a mother-in-law. Jesus just comes from the church service, and he immediately they tell, Simon tells him, hey, my, my mother-in-law is sick. Please pray for her. Please heal her. Please touch her. And isn't it a beautiful thing when a son-in-law actually wants Jesus to touch his mother-in-law? Our culture's filled with mother-in-law jokes, right? Have you ever heard any? And if you're a mother-in-law, you've heard all of them. And for some, time, for some reasons, a lot of them actually have merit. <laughs> some uh, mother-in-laws are psychos. So, uh, <laughs> but you, you would think that you would want, when I got married, and my wife and I both fell in love with Jesus. And her mom and dad, who are my in-laws, my mother-in-law and my father-in-law, they didn't know the Lord, but we prayed for them. We wanted Jesus to touch them. And it took 16 years for her mom and dad to finally come to Jesus. That was a lot of years of praying. 
right, for the Lord to touch her and for them to make themselves available for his service. Because as soon as Jesus touches her, she raises up and what she do? She starts serving the Lord. Isn't that a beautiful thing when you're, you're in-laws and um, on both sides, everybody knows the Lord. It's just such a blessing to see people walking with the Lord and serving the Lord. Then the healing man in verse 32, in evening when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed and the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases, cast out many demons and did not allow demons to speak because they knew him. So at nighttime, Sabbath's over. Sabbath goes from sundown Friday to sundown on Saturday. After synagogue on Saturday, they go to Peter's house. He heals his mother-in-law and the sun goes down. Now the whole town comes with all their sick. Imagine you're in any community. This is up at Capernaum. Um, But imagine you're in any community and there's no hospital. There's no doctors. There's no medicine. There's nothing. You have all these ancient remedies, and they had doctors in their day that did the best they could with what they had, which would be, you know, kind of folksy remedies and various things. But imagine now there's a physician in town that can raise the dead, deliver people from possession, heal the sick, heal the lame, heal the blind, heal the deaf. You think everybody's going to come from a long ways or long way to get that experience? If, if you have a, a child that's sick, if you have a wife that's sick, if you have any, a friend that's sick, you're going to come from everywhere to get the healing touch of Jesus. And this picture of the mask humanity in our town is filled with broken lives and broken people. Now today with modern medicine, if I, you get sick, you call a doc, right? You make an appointment, you go to the doctor. He, he didn't maybe even pray about it. You go to the cabinet, you got a killer crushing uh, headache, you just go and grab the medicine, the ibuprofen or the Tylenol, depending on your flavor, and you get that remedy. You get a, a terrible cold, and you go get the decongestant, and you go get, you know, what? It, you just go get all these medicines, and you have all this stuff available. But imagine in their day, with none of that, you think, you think you'd be desperate for somebody that had the ability to heal, the ability to touch you, to give you hope? to give you some kind of relief from the suffering that you're going through? Well, how did Jesus maintain all this? You know, when you give, 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 like we've watched him give, how do you keep it all straight? And we finish with this thought, the powerful man, verse 35. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. Simon and those who were with him searched for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is looking for you, but he said to them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose have come. I, for this purpose I have come. And he was preaching in their synagogues and throughout all of Galilee and casting out demons. This is the formula to constantly be renewed, recharged, refreshed in your walk with God. He ministers all late into the night, but in the morning rather than, he just gets up early, right? He gets up early and he goes and spends an hour maybe in prayer. And he just hangs out with the Father and he's praying, he's like, Lord, I don't know what this day holds. Yesterday was a big day, yesterday was a full day, but I get recharged when I get alone with God. I spend time in the word, I spend time in prayer. And then I also, when Simon and all these people found him, they said, everybody's looking for you. As soon as you start ministering to people, it's amazing how everybody else now wants to run your schedule. That's what happens. 
I'm a pastor. Everybody wants to run my schedule, right? How come you can't be there? How come you can't do that? How come you won't do that? How come? Because I just get up in the morning and I pray, and whatever purpose God has for me, if it's not to do that, Jesus says, I know the, the pressure of the people all want me to go back to that town and do that because they all experience this healing, right? But I've just been praying, and the Lord wants me to go to this town and bring hope to this town. So this is their, the, the, the people pressure, but this is what my father wants. So when I get filled up in prayer and the word and stay focused on the purpose that God has for me, I have to do what God has called me to. Uh, recently, I, I had somebody that they, they demanded that I was the one that was going to solve these pro- this problem for them, X, Y, and Z. And I politely told him, hey, you know, I'm, we have somebody else that functions in that way in the ministry, and that's not my role, and that's not what I do, but I'll connect you with them. No, he said, absolutely, definitively, with great authority. No, it will be you. And once again, I politely, very pastorally, told him, no. And three times, I told him very firmly and prayerfully that I'm not going to do that. And he still demanded that I do it. And I said, go ahead and give your information to my assistant, uh, email, and, and we'll do the appropriate thing with the information. Which I realized this person is not gonna take no. He believes that he's in charge of my schedule to tell me what to do. Now I'm here to serve the people. All of us as servants, we're here to serve the people, but we're not owned by the people. I'm bought and paid for by my father and the blood of his son. He has bought and paid for me, and I'll do what he wants me to do, and I'll be led by his spirit with what he wants me to do. And that means, you know, have you discovered if you're a person of priority, that means I say no to nine different things so I can say yes to the right thing. Do you realize that? This is how you become an effective person. I know what I'm not good at, what I'm not effective at, and what other people can do much better than me, and I stay away from those things. Why would I do what I'm not good at? I'm not gonna do it. I'm gonna do what only I can do. Only I can pray for and study and prepare for my message. This weekend, I shared a message Saturday night, a different one nine o'clock, and a different one at 11 o'clock, and now you get the recycled version, a better version at, 11, at one o'clock, right? Because I've already practiced it once, okay? But this is what my calling is, to work hard in prayer in the word, to deliver something that is effective when you come. If I don't do my job and you just show up, I've wasted all your time. You know, some pastors, they're, they're overwhelmed that they have to share a 10-minute homily on a Sunday morning. That's it. And they're just overwhelmed. And they go, you know, I was just reading in the paper. I was just watching Seinfeld and thought I'd talk to you about some things on Seinfeld. It's like, you need to labor in the word And it's my job when you show up that I have something that is fruitful, pertinent, and effective to help you spiritually. That's my job. But if I do what everybody else's priorities are for me, you're not gonna get that. I'm gonna be running hither and yon like a chicken with my head cut off because that's what people want me to do. But when you say no to nine things so I can say yes to the right thing, Jesus models how I will maintain my sanity. I have to spend daily time in the word and prayer with Jesus and get filled up. And then I need to have his sense of direction, what I, what I should be doing, what I should be focusing on, and that's what I'm gonna focus on, and then I'm gonna give to everybody else through delegation what they can focus on. So that process makes a church and a ministry super fruitful, super effective, 
and people's lives are changed because the people that need counseling are getting counseling. The people that need the hospital visit are getting that. The people that need uh, help in some way are getting, everybody's getting their needs met and that's how you get the job done. May the Lord grace you and I with seeing Jesus on the move, but you personally are the apple of his eye. He loves you, he knows all about you, and all of the fruitful ministry we see him moving through this chapter, he wants to bring to your own heart and to your own mind and bring you that, that, that peace that's beyond comprehension, beyond understanding for your own soul. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace in this time together. And I pray that your spirit would truly do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. And Lord, I pray for those who are just right now, they, they just have some heavy burdens going on in their life. And you care, Lord, you sincerely care. And so I pray that you would meet them in a special way today, that they would feel nourished and edified and strengthened and built up in you and in the promises of your word, in the reality that you're alive and well and present with your power to help us in our time of need. Thank you for your love and grace, and I pray that you would pour out in abundance your heavenly love on each person that's come to your house to receive from you today. In Jesus' name, amen.